The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am truly honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Naomi Areskes. She is a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She arrived at Harvard after spending 15 years as professor of history and science studies at the University of California in San Diego, and she was an adjunct professor of geosciences at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Dr. Oreskes' research focuses on the earth and environmental sciences with a particular interest in understanding scientific consensus and dissent. She is co-author of the book we're going to be talking about today, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Welcome, Dr. Oreskes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I should let our listeners know that your book that you co-authored with Eric Conway is actually the inspiration for the film Merchants of Doubt, and I recommend both highly to our listeners. Well, why don't we start out with a simple question. You're a woman and you're a scientist, which is more common today, but it was rare. And getting into science is not always the track that women take. What led you to that source of study? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I'm getting old now. It's hard to remember. I always liked nature. I always liked the outdoors. I was one of those kids who collected rocks and minerals and bugs. And I grew up in New York City in an apartment, but I was always interested in science. And when I took a geology class, an earth science class in high school, I was lucky that in New York State, uh, the state uh, standard curriculum requires earth science, which is unusual and, and really great. And we took field trips, and I just thought it was so great to be able to do science and study the natural world and be outside at the same time. And then when I was in college, I had the opportunity to work as an exploration geologist. And it was just the greatest thing to do work that was intellectually stimulating but still be able to be outdoors. So I think for me it was always that kind of, it was a combination of the intellectual stimulation of scientific work with just really liking to be outside. Yeah, that's so interesting because so many people that I speak with who have focused on earth sciences, whether it's looking at water or human biology or farming, agriculture, growing food, they often say that they had their start developing this love of nature as a child. So it's great to know that that's a common theme. So this book that you've written with Eric Conway, Merchants of Doubt, is a wonderful resource, I think, for people today, especially when we've lost a lot of environmental journalists. We've lost a lot of that heavy-duty investigative reporting, and we have a lot of people who pretend to be scientists or to pretend to be experts in a certain field. Maybe they're an expert in one field, but they're speaking about another, telling us this, that, and the other, whether it's talking about the safety of flame retardants or the safety of pesticides, genetically engineered foods, etc. How do we as citizens evaluate the science that we receive from so many different sources? It's very difficult. And one of the key points of our book and our film really is to show people 
that it is difficult and that if you're confused, if you don't know what to think, it's really not your fault. It's not because you're stupid or lazy. It's because it is a difficult problem and because people have been deliberately trying to confuse you. And that's the most important message of our work is the discovery of the the absolutely deliberate character of these campaigns which you know we'll talk more in detail about this but you know which are very very widespread whose whole purpose is to confuse you because market researchers know advertisers know and psychologists know that if people are confused they will probably just keep on doing what they're doing right now like they won't change so if i'm confused about climate change i'll say well i don't know uh, you know, I'm not going to go out and rush and buy an electric car if we don't know if this problem is real anyway. Or if I'm confused about nutrition and I really like eating high-fat food, I'll say, well, you know, why should I change my diet and eat food that I don't enjoy as much if the scientists aren't even sure anyway? And so this goes on and on in so many different areas. And it really is a way of preserving and protecting the status quo by making us think that we don't have enough evidence to say that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, we do. Right. And in an earlier conversation we had, you described this level of communication as misinformation campaigns. And I thought, I love that terminology because I think what we really need to talk about today is this language of deception or the language of doubt. And I've used the word propaganda in the past, which many people have a connotation of, but this idea of misinformation or disinformation campaigns all of these campaigns follow a formula, don't they? Exactly, they do. And that was one of the staggering discoveries we made. So when I first started working on this material, I was working on the history of climate science. And particularly, I was actually working on the history of oceanography. I fell into the climate story by accident, really, because I came across the work of a group of oceanographers who were working on climate change going back to the 1950s. And one thing led to another, and I realized that there was a gap between the way climate change was being presented by journalists who were reporting it as a debate with two more or less equal and opposite sides, reporting it as a scientific debate, when actually when you looked at the science, what you found was that in the scientific community, there was really no debate about the reality of climate change that was happening and that it was caused by human activities. And in fact, the scientific basis, the fundamental basis for understanding that was very, very old. It went back at least 50 years and arguably 100 years. So the, it was the disconnect between the public discourse and the academic science that I got interested in. Why is there this big gap? And so I wrote an article in 2004, so it's now 12 years ago. I wrote an article that just said, hey, there's a gap. You know, the media are presenting this as a debate, but actually it's not a scientific debate, and so we should stop presenting it as if it were, and we should stop believing people who tell us it's a debate. And I didn't say anything about who was fomenting the debate or why they were fomenting it or what we should do about climate change. I didn't support a carbon tax or take any political position. It was just a kind of factual analysis of what was going on in the scientific community. And it was the first quantitative analysis of this, what you know people now talk about, the 97% consensus. But when that paper got published and when I wrote an op-ed based on it that was published in the Washington Post, I started getting hate mail. I started getting attacked. I got threatening phone calls, and it was like a kind of Alice in Wonderland or Alice through the Looking Glass moment where all of a sudden I was in this very bizarre parallel universe. And at a conference a couple months later, I mentioned that this was going on, and Eric Conway happened to be at that conference, and he said to me, well, Naomi, you know, the people who are attacking you are the same people who attacked 
the scientist who worked on the ozone hole. And I thought, what? <laughs> that seemed very strange. And also that Eric mentioned Sherry Rowland, who was one of the scientists who won the Nobel Prize for predicting that there would be an ozone hole. And I thought, wait, so I'm being attacked by the same people who attacked one of the most famous, most brilliant, most fantastic scientists of the 20th century. So in a weird way, it was almost a compliment. And so Eric said, this was at a conference in Germany, he said, well, when I get home, I'll send you some materials I have. So he sent me this big file, and it was this sort of staggering realization that the same arguments that were being made to claim that there was a big scientific debate about climate change and that we didn't really know if climate change was a problem, the exact same arguments were made over the ozone hole. And in some cases, they were verbatim, word for word. You could take out the word ozone hole and put in the word climate change, and the sentence would be identical. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, something fishy is going on here. So Eric and I started talking, we started digging, and pretty soon we discovered that some of these key people had worked for the tobacco industry and had done the same thing for tobacco, claiming that the science was unsettled. So again, you could take out the word climate change and you could put in the words tobacco smoking and the sentence remained unchanged. And it was at that point that we realized that we had stumbled across a pretty big story about the use of these strategies of doubt-mongering and disinformation in order to confuse people about really important issues like the hazards of smoking or the risks of climate change in order to prevent us from doing anything about it. Right. And later in your book, you also talk about the work of Rachel Carson. And so go ahead and take tobacco or climate change or ozone out and substitute the word pesticides. And what I'm seeing now in the food world is the same situation going on with genetically engineered foods. It's the same formula, which you outline. You call it the tobacco strategy. And there are three components, and we should talk about those. The first is that the science is incomplete and uncertain. Right. So a big strategy is to say that the science is unsettled. We don't really know. And the point of that, as I said before, is to make people think that we don't need to change anything. Because if you're asking people to change, then there's a kind of burden of proof on you to give them the reason, the evidence why they should change. Now, in the case of climate change, that evidence is absolutely overwhelming. We have tens of thousands of scientific papers. We have hundreds of scientific societies that have issued consensus statements. I mean, the amount of evidence we have about climate change is just monumental. But the idea is to undermine that, to make the American public think that, well, we don't really know, so why should we have a carbon tax? Or we don't really know, so why should we have a complicated emissions trading system? And so the whole point is to say, because the science is unsettled, we just leave the status quo the way it is and everything is fine and we don't need a law, we don't need a tax, we don't need a regulation. And in your case, we don't need food labeling. Right, exactly. Well, this idea, too, when anyone raises this idea that there could be risk, the answer is always, well, you know, we need evidence-based science. It's not all in, so we can't make a decision or draw a conclusion about an action we should be taking. Exactly. And that's a very pernicious argument because, of course, it's a really it's a misrepresentation of how science works. I'm a historian of science by training, a geologist and historian of science, and one of the things that any scientist or any historian will tell you is that nothing in science is ever 100% certain, any more than anything in life is really ever 100% certain. But scientific knowledge isn't really based on the idea of absolute certainty. It's based on the idea of a kind of preponderance of evidence. Sometimes people have talked about 
a consilience of evidence, which is sort of a fancy way of saying when the evidence is consistent. So scientists make judgments based on the weight of evidence, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change talks about the balance of evidence. We take the evidence, we weigh it, we evaluate it, and when the evidence is pretty strong, when it's very good, when you know the vast majority of the evidence is on one side and not the other, or when it at some point becomes even overwhelming, then we say, yes, we know these things to be true. We know DNA carries hereditary information. We know that the continents of the Earth move. You know, We know that space and time uh, are bent in the presence of massive objects. These are all things we know. It doesn't mean that there aren't still questions to be answered about them, but the fact that there are still some questions doesn't undermine a very, very large body of knowledge that we've built up over time. But it's a tricky strategy and it's a clever strategy because if one of these people comes along and says, well, you know, there's still a lot of questions about climate change, I can't say, no, that's a lie. There are no questions about climate change. I can't say that. What I have to say is, yes, but the balance of evidence, the weight of evidence is actually overwhelming. We have so much evidence that this is true and we actually have really no evidence to doubt that climate change is happening. And the questions that we are raising are not really about whether or not climate change is happening. The questions are, how bad is it? Mm -hmm. And so this is the same for many other things as well. So if you think about tobacco, there is absolutely no question that tobacco causes huge amounts of disease and mortality among tobacco users and even among people who don't use tobacco but who live in the same house as people who use tobacco or flew in the same airplane as people who are using tobacco. That evidence was absolutely overwhelming but the tobacco industry would say, yeah, well, then how come my Aunt Rose smoked a pack a day and lived to 90? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's that one little, you know, one little fact. And, yes, it's true. There are some people who somehow managed to smoke, you know, huge amounts and live to 90. But those people are actually extremely rare. Like the latest one is Mike Pence, who wrote an op-ed some years ago. He said, smoking doesn't kill was the title of the op-ed. And the reason he claimed in the op-ed he says, only two out of three smokers die of smoking-related diseases. Only two out of three. So in other words, 66% of all smokers die of smoking-related diseases. That's a huge, huge figure, right? Right. Uh, but if a person's not paying attention, they say, oh, smoking doesn't kill. Only two out of three smokers are killed. The other one gets away with it, right? Right, exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Naomi Oreskes. She is a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University and co-author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. All right, I have to hit on the other two points under this tobacco strategy just so we get a full picture of how we are manipulated against our best interests. The second method is this idea that any alternative to what we've been doing will be difficult and expensive. And I look at that through this food and agriculture lens, and I think, yeah, anytime somebody says, gosh, these pesticides are causing birth defects, we need not to use them, we will be fought with an argument that says, oh, but, you know, organic food is very expensive, or we don't have enough land, it's going to be very difficult to do this, when actually the United Nations has a report that says agroecological farming is the only way to move forward to feed the world and prevent illness. Yeah, well, that's a great example, and, and you're absolutely right. So this is the second strategy, and sometimes it's even worse than what you said, Well, they'll say, and you are an evil person because you want poor people to starve. Right. You want poor people. You want to deny poor people energy. 
right? Right. So they actually try to flip the moral tables and make it seem as if somehow they are the great defenders of the poor and the folks who need more food or more energy. And it's an incredibly nefarious argument for a number of reasons. One is the one you just said. It's almost never true. Like, if you look at the case of fossil fuels, so I always come back to the thing I know best. Right. Um, but I think you're right that there are very strong parallels. If you look at the case of fossil fuels, there are enormous, enormous subsidies to fossil fuels. The World Bank, which is not generally viewed as a, as a left-wing organization, has estimated that direct subsidies to fossil fuels are $700 billion every year. And that's just the direct subsidy. So that does not include all the indirect subsidies or the indirect costs like lung disease that's caused by air pollution from burning coal. So $700 billion, and if you look at the U.S. share of that, subsidies for fossil fuels are 10 times the subsidies for renewables in America. And yet that argument is constantly made. Renewables are too expensive. We can't afford them. Only rich people can have renewables. But it's not true. If we were to take even half of the subsidies that are currently given to fossil fuels and shift them over to renewables, suddenly renewables would actually be much cheaper. So if you actually look at the total economic package, including the direct subsidies and the indirect subsidies, IMF, International Monetary Fund, um, I don't remember the exact number, but it was in the trillions of dollars when you bring in all the sickness, disease, the climate change damage. So actually, you could make the argument we can't afford not to switch to renewables. But again, you know, it's hard to reduce that to a sound bite. And then as for the who's got the moral high ground, I mean, of all the pernicious and disgraceful things that people in the fossil fuel industry do and say, when they claim that somehow they are the defenders of the poor because they're going to bring energy to the poor people of the world, well, first of all, they never do that, right? I mean, we've had a fossil fuel industry for a century, and this industry has never shown any regard or respect for the needs of the local people in the communities where they're drilling for oil, gas, and coal. In fact, many of them have left legacies of massive destruction, not just environmental destruction, but health destruction, community destruction, corruption of governments. I mean, the list is endless. And again, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, I mean, these are all incredibly well documented. So these people have never cared about the poor. But now when they're sort of a little bit up against the ropes, suddenly they discover the poor. You know, it's, it's pretty despicable, really. Yeah. Well, the third and final strategy is to make it seem as if the scientific community is motivated by self-interest and political ideology. And we can even move that into the strategy that was used against Rachel Carson, you know, calling her a hysterical female. And these are always emotional arguments. I'll, I'm just going to fit that into that third argument, if I might. Yeah. yeah well, yes, you're right. And the idea that the scientific community is corrupt is a really big part of this because the, fundamentally the best way they can discredit scientists and the science, the whole scientific process, like if I say, well, but there's overwhelming evidence and 97% of all climate scientists who have worked on this issue are in agreement, then they say, yeah, but scientists are corrupt. And once they say that, then all my data goes out the window because if it were true then it really wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if it was 100% of scientists, right? So, again, it's a very pernicious argument, hard to counter, except to say, I mean, this is where I make the shameless plug for reading the book, right? Right. One of the things we showed in our book is that that is totally the pot calling the kettle black. In fact, one of the things I've discovered working on this issue for so long now, almost anything they accuse, like, me of doing it's something they've actually done themselves. In fact, Ben Santer, who's one of the greatest climate scientists of the century, once said, I never used to understand why these people were always accusing me 
of doing all these nefarious things. And then I discovered, oh, that's actually what they do. You know, right. and maybe because they do that, they assume I do too, um, like lying and misrepresenting and taking data out of context. So this is all part of the strategy to try to undermine science by undermining scientists. And so we've seen a lot of personal attacks on scientists. I mean, if you go to the Internet and you Google me, you can see I'm a witch, I'm a communist, I'm a Stalinist. I mean, I'm all kinds of crazy things. You know, it's amazing I don't have any friends, really. Right. You know, so it's part of the strategy, too. And so it's really important for people to understand that. And it's also important for any scientist who wants to speak up and help to try to counter the disinformation to realize that they will be attacked and they will be the victims of smear campaigns. But knowing that in advance, and knowing that that's part of what they do is extremely helpful because otherwise you might begin to wonder, well, what have I done wrong? Did I make a mistake? There was a very, very moving article about a week or two ago by a woman Australian scientist who was attacked for work she had done about climate records in Australia. Hmm. And she spent a year re-examining her data, rechecking everything to make sure that she had got it all right because she kind of took the criticism on board as if maybe she actually had done something wrong. And a year later, after they double and triple checked everything and found, well, actually, the results are the same, no matter how you slice and dice the data, you know, then she becomes comes to realize, no, actually, she didn't do anything wrong, but she felt as if she had. And I think scientists are especially vulnerable to that because we're trained to be so sensitive about really being detail-oriented, double-checking, second decimal place, you know, making sure everything is carefully reviewed, all your charts and graphs are double and triple checked. So if someone accuses you of doing something wrong or making a mistake, it's very easy to internalize that and think, oh, maybe I did do something wrong. But it's really important to understand, well, maybe you did it. It's always good to double check. It's never good to assume, you know, you don't want to assume I'm right and they're wrong. You don't want to make that an assumption. But it's also really important to know that this is a strategy that is used to undermine us, to make us doubt ourselves, and especially to make the public doubt us. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you mention that because I've spoken to scientists who are at land-grant universities doing research, and if they come up with a finding that is counter to the dominant narrative that is funded, for example, at, at these universities, say in agriculture research, things will happen to them like they'll get the cold shoulder from their colleagues or they won't be seen as being part of the larger group, and I think it's human nature to want to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a difference between climate science and agriculture. As you said, many land-grant universities in America rely very, very heavily on funding that comes partly from the private sector, Mm -hmm. and that isn't necessarily bad. There's a long history of the private sector supporting independent and legitimate research in the United States, but I think you're right that in recent years we've increasingly seen pressure on academics that when the scientific findings are not favorable to private sector sponsors, that puts scientists in a tricky position. And if you stand up and are honest and, and talk honestly about the results that you're finding, there can be pressure on you. And again, I think that's why it's really important for all of us to be talking about this, because on the one hand, you may find yourself in an awkward position, but you also may find that you have friends you didn't know you had, because certainly when I first started getting attacked, it was very upsetting. It was very worrisome. There was a time when I lay awake at night worrying that like, maybe I'd lose my job. I was in a public university, not a land-grant school, but uh, we were a sea grant school. But when I started talking to people about what was happening, 
well, suddenly I got a lot of support in all kinds of places that I didn't expect it, and I actually made a lot of great friends, including some amazing people, including Sherwood Rowland, the very man that Eric Conway had first noted had been a victim of the same thing. And Sherry became a great friend, and it was a it was a huge privilege of my life that I got to know Sherry Rowland and call him a friend. So, you know, bad things can happen, but good things can happen too, and I think it's really important, especially for young scientists, to know that if they stand up for their science and if it's really backed with strong, peer-reviewed evidence, most of their colleagues will be there for them, and it can be a bumpy road, but there's also something great about being able to sleep at night knowing that you are doing everything you can to do the right thing in the world and to do the right thing by your fellow citizens because, for goodness sake, I mean, this is all about protecting people, right? I mean, right. you know, like I got asked the other day about ExxonMobil, and I always try to – I'm not interested in damaging ExxonMobil. I'm interested in stopping climate change, and that's what this is all about, whether you work on endocrine-disrupting chemicals or toxins in food, or climate change, or the ozone hole. This is about things that are hurting people, that are hurting people's prosperity, hurting people's health, and potentially hurting their lives. You know, I think keeping your eye on that prize, keeping that in focus, is really crucial for all of us, because it's not just about money, <laughs> although obviously money is a big part of this, but it's really about protecting the world, right? Protecting yeah. our friends and neighbors, protecting our children, and also protecting biodiversity and all the incredible plants and animals that we share this, this planet with, right? Right. You know, and I have my study, I designed my garden so I can see it when I look out from my study, and I've, one of the things I did partly because of the great people I met at Penn State is I built a pollinator-friendly garden, and I look out and I see these bees and butterflies and birds, you know, and it's just great, and it's a reminder of what this is really all about. Right. You know, we just have a few minutes left, but I want to give you a chance to Pull something out of this book that you want to leave our listeners with. Well, you know, like you said, these issues are complicated. And so I hope people will read the book or see the film because it helps you appreciate the depth and the complexity of the issue. And I think whatever your issue is, whether you work on food or pesticides or climate change or whatever, nutrition, public health, seeing how these issues have played out in other domains I think is terrifically important for figuring out how to situate yourself and your own work and how to be an effective and articulate advocate for the science in whatever field you are in. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, getting to a point where, I know I've been, where I say, how much more evidence do I need? Shouldn't I err on the side of precaution, even if that's not how our regulatory laws are created? But shouldn't we, as, as scientists, be advocates for future generations? Well, I agree, although one thing I always say about that is we are way past precaution on almost all these issues. I mean, some people, if you say that, they think you're being a nervous Nelly. Right. The fact is, precaution would have been acting on climate change 20 years ago. Precaution would have been acting on the ozone hole in the 1970s, and it would have been acting on tobacco in the 1950s. This country has a long history of the opposite of precaution, of waiting until the evidence is so overwhelming and waiting until people have been hurt and biodiversity has been damaged. So I really think this is way past the whole notion of precaution. This is really about we're already late to the game here, and now the point is how can we stop more damage? Right. Well, the first step is reading this book. Thank you. Thank <laughs> and you. the book, again, is Merchants of Doubt, 
by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, how a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to global warming. Our time is up, unfortunately, but I so much want to thank you, Dr. Oreskes, for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for this important body of work, Dr. Oreskes. You're welcome, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you.